Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28 is going to be our text for this morning. Several weeks ago, you'll remember, we asked and answered the question, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? And we said that the people of God are delineated in the scriptures um, along four characteristics, four distinguishing characteristics. They are a purified and redeemed people. We said that the people of God are an obedient and just people. They are a Jewish and Gentile people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And fourthly, we said they are a trusting people. They are a trusting people. God's people are a trusting people, meaning that they trust in and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ with their entire heart, mind, and strength. And God's people don't just trust him when things are going well or when things are going you know, smoothly. We trust him even in the midst of great difficulty, even when things become very dark. Why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because trusting God is indeed the central theme yet again of the section that we are entering as we get to Isaiah 28 to 39. Like the continual beating of a drum, yet again, you and I are confronted with this choice that Isaiah has put before us. And the choice is, will you live your life by the promises of God and reap divine rest and repose for your soul? Or will you live by worldly strategies and, and human policies and, if that continues to the end of your days, reap divine retribution as you fall desperately short, as we all do, of God's blazing holiness? There's really only two choices. As we come to the text this morning, Isaiah, I mean, excuse me, Israel and Judah they have maintained little more than a passing acquaintance with the word of God, God's instruction under the law. They refused to allow him and the truth to rule in their hearts and to hold sway in their lives. That's the situation that Isaiah is ministering in. And since God and his word are not in the driver's seat here, worldly wisdom and human effort inevitably takes over. It's what it always does. That was true in Isaiah's day, and it's equally true in our day. When, when, when the truth of God is not in the driver's seat, then worldly wisdom always grabs the wheel. If you just look across the, the landscape of, uh, of Christ's church today, you will see human policies and strategies always fill the vacuum left behind when God and his promises are no longer believed and no longer trusted as sufficient. People are encouraged to look to God to, to look to a great God, but that great God's main purpose seems to be to help them reach their full potential, or that great God's purpose seems to be to realize their political preferences, or to make them more prosperous and influential, or, to, or even just to sign off on their authentic selves. They look to God for a thousand selfish ends. But when that same all-powerful God calls them to die to self, when that same all-powerful God, God calls him to walk in weakness and lowliness, when he, when he instructs us to love and serve those who oppose us, to wait prayerfully on the Lord's timing, things that glorify him, things that exalt him and not us, well, now God's word and his promises don't seem quite adequate. 
And so even without denying God's truth on paper, professing Christians in practice can become practical atheists through and through because doing things God's way just doesn't seem to be working, doesn't seem to be getting the results that we want. But here's what we have to be reminded of. Even though living by our wits and working the system, making the right moves, that might get results in the world that will, get, uh, that will pile up earthly achievements. In the end, all of those accomplishments will be like their creators, fleeting, perishable, with feet of clay. These chapters that we are coming to this morning deal, uh, as we, especially as we get into the later chapters, they are going to deal with a number of historical events, events that were much closer to Isaiah's day than to ours. This is, you know, these are things in his immediate ministry that happened during his immediate ministry. But those historical events are meant to be faith builders for God's people in every generation. Those who understand something of the awesome holiness of the triune God and the depth of their own personal sin have pondered the question uh, the questions, really, multiple questions that Isaiah asks in Isaiah 33 and verse 14, where he says, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? Speaking of God's absolute holiness. Those who understand something of God's character have pondered the realities of his holiness and their own shortcomings, their own depravity. But rather than throwing up their hands in hopeless resignation and rather than shaking their fists in, in, in prideful anger or spitting the bit in rebellious defiance, they realize that they can only approach the Holy One of Israel by faith. By faith. It is only by faith which demonstrates itself in a heartfelt repentance and practical trust in God and his word. God is not only just, we understand that he's holy and just, but he is the gracious justifier of the one who has faith in the Lord's servant, as we're going to see in chapter 53, in his atoning work. And so Isaiah is going to reiterate in chapter 30 and verse 15, in this section, he'll say that in repentance and rest, you will, find, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. It is always by faith that we approach the holy God. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous man will live by his faith. It is always on the basis of faith. All that to say, these chapters, I think as we read them, and we're going we're gonna to kind of pick them apart, a few sections of them apart, these chapters are meant to reveal to us something of the weightiness of God's character. There, and, and as we understand and grasp the weightiness of his character, then it's, it is to stir us up in response to a genuine faith in the true and living God. As we know him, then we know ourselves rightly. A faith, it's to stir us up to faith that demonstrates itself in a life of obedience at the most practical levels of our day-to-day lives. Now, chapters 28 to 39, just to kind of give us a sense of the context can be broken down into two major sections. In the first section, which really runs from chapter 28 to verse chapter 35, is largely anchored in the reign of Hezekiah. You remember back at the very beginning, Isaiah tells us that his ministry spanned the reign of four, really five kings. 
uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and now uh, Hezekiah. And then, though it's not mentioned, he's likely spilled over into the reign of Manasseh. So we're kind of at the, you know, a little bit later in his ministry as Hezekiah is ascending to the throne and definitely as, as we get into the, the back half of this section. But a good portion of the content of the first section, 28 to 35, is meant to really lay a foundation for the historical details that are recorded in, de- in, in, in a lot of detail in 36 to 39. It's almost all historical narrative. It's all narrative text of, of what was going on with Hezekiah and with the Assyrian assault. But remember, as we, we, I think we said this before in one of the very early messages, historical details in the biblical narrative serve a deeper purpose. They're not just there to give us random facts so we can answer questions on Jeopardy. They're meant to tell us something. They're meant to serve a, better, a deeper purpose. Historical details are meant to enrich our understanding of theological realities. I like to cook, and you can pretty much jazz up any dish with butter, right? Just throw more, you know, you make a steak, steak's okay. Throw some compound butter in there, and now that steak is, you know, chef's kiss, right? It's, it's good. And that's what the historical details are meant to do. They are meant to enrich. They are meant to draw out the, the, the meatiness of the theological realities that are going on. And in this case, these historical details are meant to shine a light on spiritual issues that lie behind Hezekiah's choices as we understand what he's doing. We see this conflict between God's promises and human policies, and we are confronted with the realities of where our ultimate trust is being placed. Will we take God at his word Will we believe him and trust in his promises? Or will we choose our own path? Will we rely on our own wisdom? Will we cling to our own strength and bank ourselves on our own efforts? And what we learn again and again throughout these chapters, 28 to 39, is that trust in human power and human effort is foolishness. Our only and ultimate hope is to trust in the Lord as king. That's the theme of these chapters. Now, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, we can't cover this entire section in one or two messages. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah? We really can't. It's just way too much material. But uh, what I want to do this morning is to drill down on just one of six sermonic warnings that Isaiah gives in chapters 28 to 33. Each one is separated by this... Um, beginning phrase, you know, woe to this group, woe to that group. There's six of them in chapters 28 to 33. I want to look at just the first one in chapter 28 this morning. And throughout each of these six words of woe, we'll call them, Isaiah alternates in those sections between threat and promise, threat and promise. God will pronounce a woe, and normally that's followed up with a word of promise. And so it's kind of seesaws back and forth. And then as we get to chapters 34 and 35, which in some ways kind of function like an appendix to this whole section, um, it gives, we get an ultimate woe in chapter 34 and an ultimate promise of divine restoration and blessing in chapter 35. And then 36 to 39 is dealing with the narrative around Hezekiah and the situation with his own, his own uh, personal restoration as well as God's deliverance of Judah from the hands of the Syrian 
um, uh, assault. So, but what I want to do this morning is just look at chapter 28 in a little bit of detail. And Lord willing, it will give us a grasp of the other sections because they're somewhat similar. So we probably don't need to go into each of those, in each of those chapters. So our outline this morning is, is, is simple. It is uh, three parts, and we'll break it down like this. And it's not sequential, it's more thematic, but we'll have words of woe. Secondly, there'll be words of promise. And he ends in 23 to 29 with words of wisdom. So words of woe, words of promise, words of wisdom. Now, if you go... You remember back from 13 to 27, chapters 13 to 27, we learned that, that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord of history and that in that day, that future day, when God's kingdom program is, is consummated, all that will remain, we said, is God, his kingdom, and his holy people. We understand that. That's a pretty tall order for Isaiah to claim that this is what God is going to do. If you're one of Isaiah's hearers, if you're one of his disciples, as he talks about in chapter 8, and you hear him talk about these realities, there's a part of you that has to ask, is this guy for real? Is, is, this, you know, is this really going to happen? You're telling me, Isaiah, that the God of little old Israel is going to reign supreme over the entire earth and and that there will be a purified and redeemed humanity who acknowledge and worship him alone, and that's it? That's what's coming? How can we know that this great thing is going to happen? How can we be confident that what you're saying, you know, anyone can say that, but how can we know that that is true? And so Isaiah says, I'm going to show you. I will show you. I'll tell you some things that will happen in the near future. And if those things happen the way I've described them, then you'll know the words I've spoken to you are the Lord's words. And so that's what he's doing in these chapters. God's sovereign control over the powers and even the superpowers of that day, Israel and Syria, Egypt, Assyria, the, the, the empire of Assyria, described in these chapters, 20 to 39, are proof of concept that God holds the nations and directs in the whole direction of human history, he holds it all in the palm of his hand. And, and that tells them and, re, and, and re, confirms to them that the prophet's words are God's words, and that God's kingdom pro, program is, is going to come to fruition exactly the way the prophet has described it. And so as we go through here, we see Assyria is this seemingly unstoppable superpower, and Hezekiah is this a vassal king that's sort of trying to wiggle out from underneath the thumb of the Assyrian might. And then later on, toward the end in chapters 38 and 39, 39 we're, we're introduced to uh, Merodach Baladan, and this is his wannabe king of Babylon who, in the east who's looking for allies in the west so that he can propel himself to power. And then you have Egypt, which is like a JV player promising help to any of its neighbors who want to stick their neck out um, and you know throw off the yoke of Assyrian supremacy. Like all these different kind of players are moving around here, and Isaiah is going to have a prophetic word for each of them that comes to pass in their day, in their lifetimes. But but as those things happen, we shouldn't be preoccupied with the secondary causes because Isaiah is really trying to fix our gaze on the first cause. 
He's trying to fix our gaze on God himself, challenging us to trust that the Lord is king. And so he begins, he begins with words of woe, and he scatters them like breadcrumbs, if you will, throughout this whole chapter, chapter 28. Isaiah 28, verses 1 to 4 He says this, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is just a um, kind of a placeholder for the northern kingdom of Israel. Woe to the drunkards of Israel and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is at the head of the fertile valley, which will be, like the, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. He begins with this word of woe, literal word of woe. This word, woe, can be used in multiple ways. It's a context, like most words, they get their meaning by their context. Here, it, it is used to speak of a summons, But sometimes it can be used to express anger, kind of like, sometimes it can be used to express uh, and verbalize pity or grief. Alas, that kind of, you'll see it translated that way in, in other portions of the Old Testament. Here, though, it's used as a summons. It is a summons by God through the mouth of the prophet to a seat of judgment. And Isaiah has a charge to bring against Samaria, the capital city in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the charge that he's bringing is one of arrogance. It's one of prideful neglect of God's word that has now given way to to self-indulgence. But the days of arrogant pride, as you kind of read through these verses, the days of arrogant pride and spiritual complacency, that is about to grind to a screeching halt. He says its flower, Ephraim's flower is fading. Its glorious beauty is waning. He describes it in verse 4 like a ripe fig that's ready to be plucked off the tree and swallowed up, devoured. Israel's end is just around the corner. How will this uh, northern kingdom be destroyed? How will they be swallowed up? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3. He says, behold... The Lord is a strong and mighty one or a mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. They are going to be trodden underfoot, verse 3 says. Now, Isaiah doesn't say by name who's going to do this, but it's obvious who this is. This is Assyria. It's, it's the unspoken mighty one that is in God's hand. Back in chapter 10, he was descri- Assyria is described as an axe that the, that the Lord wields. And so he doesn't speak of them by name, but he describes Assyria like a gathering storm or like a dam that's holding back a wall of water. God's strong and mighty agent, Assyria, is being moved into position to break forth, wash away, and trample Israel underfoot, hauling them off into exile, which, of course, we know that they did in 721 B.C. The emphasis on these images that Isaiah gives of this gathering storm and of a fig tree that's, a fig that's being swallowed up 
are meant to call attention to two things. One, the power with which Israel was going to be destroyed, and also the ease with which they were going to be destroyed. As simple as plucking a ripe fig off of a tree. Now, they're not mentioned, again, Assyria is not mentioned by name. I think that's intentional because Isaiah is drawing attention to, to the first cause behind world events, not so much the events themselves. He's not as concerned about the events themselves. It is God who changes the times and the epics. It is God who removes kings and establishes kings, Daniel 2, verse 21 tells us. And that's what he wants us to see here. God is the one doing this. So he has a word of woe for Israel. But Isaiah also has a word of woe for Judah. Remember, the kingdom is divided at this point. Israel in the north, ten tribes in the north, Judah in the south. And that was where he was ministering, Isaiah was. And that's, that's where the primary focus of his ministry was, was unfolding. But in verse 7 and to 13, he, says, he has a word of woe for Judah. He says um, in verse 7, And these also... Reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. You say, why, is it, why do you think this, this is Judah? Well, because there's a break in between 6 and 7, and then he addresses a different group. These also. These are the ones that he's with. These are the ones that he is preaching to. The problem isn't just up in Samaria. God's people in the south, in Judah, have also dismissed his word with arrogant pride and have fallen into the same trap of self-sufficiency and self-indulgence. Even the official spokespeople for God's word, the priest and the prophet, are guilty. Notice he says that their spiritual senses have been dulled. It's, and it's not even like they're hiding it. It's happening out in public, right? They, they are flaunting their sin. They reel, he says, while having visions, they totter when rendering judgment in their capacities. This is, this is blatant disregard for the truth, the scene is just, it's, it's just as gross as it sounds. It's debauched. There is rot from the top down. And Isaiah is pointing that out. And then he brings God's true word to bear and confronts these leaders with their sin. And in pride, verses 9 to 13, we see in pride they mock the prophet's message. They say it's foolish. It's childish. Look at verses 9 and 10. He's quoting them. To whom would he, Isaiah, teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. All right? Isaiah, like a patient teacher of children, has been laying out God's truth plainly, one bit at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there. How do the arrogant mockers respond? They respond by scoffing. Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think we are? Children? Babies? We are politicians. We are leaders. We live in the real world. That's what they're saying here. We live in the real world. Let me tell you, Isaiah, son of Amos, in the real world, resting in God, standing by faith on God's promises, that's going to get you exactly nowhere. 
They, they are mocking the prophet here. They are, they are scoffing at his, the simplicity and the clarity of God's word as it's being delivered. And what is Isaiah's reply? If you won't hear and receive the plain word of God because it sounds like nonsense and foolishness to you, then he says, foolishness and nonsense you will hear, but not from me. Instead, you'll hear it from the lips of foreign adversaries, foreign invaders. Verse 11, this is Isaiah speaking. Indeed, he, God, will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. God offered his people salvation through simple, childlike simplicity. Trust the Lord. Trust in his word. That's what verse 12 says. Here is rest. Give rest to the weary. Here is repose. This is, this is God's offer, but they would not listen. It, it, the end of verse 12 is, is, is intentionally... It's like they're trying not to listen. They've got their fingers in their ears. They refused, and they are now going to reap the consequences. By the way, this is why Paul quotes this exact text in, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Remember, I don't know, six, eight months ago when we were going through that section, um, where Paul is, is uh, reminding and really kind of rebuking the Corinthian church for their fixation with speaking in tongues. He says that's a sign for unbelievers, not believers. This has no part of the, this really has no business being the focal point of the service. He says God always, this is Paul's point, God always uses unintelligible speech as a judgment against those who refuse to hear the straightforward, understandable divine word preached. And so, and so he was warning the Corinthian church their, in their immaturity to stop idolizing tongues, both real or counterfeit, when they came together because that's not how God's going to build up the body of Christ. When you come together, he says you need to preach and speak plainly and clearly. And he refers to this text to make his point. God always uses the unintelligible to judge not to edify. So there's a final word of woe here in um, the end of 28, uh, chapter 28, or toward the end of tw- in verses 19 to 22. He says at the end of verse 19, and it will be sheer terror to understand what God is going to do and what it means. And then he, he gives this imagery, the bed is too short on which to stretch out. The blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim, and he will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, speaking to Judah, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. He says, terror is awaiting you, Judah, and God here tells them why. He tells them why. God has offered them rest. He has offered them repose, verse 12, for their soul. But they have scoffed at it. They have rejected it. 
And now, having made the proverbial bed, they must lie in it. That's the imagery that he's using here. But what they're going to find out is that all their worldly, man-made efforts aren't going to cut it. The picture is one in verse 20. This picture hits home for me. I've spent many a, many a night on a bed that was too short, <laughs> trying to cover myself with a blanket that was too narrow. And just as a short bed and narrow blanket provide no rest or comfort for a weary body, so God's people, he says, will find all their posturing and maneuvering apart from faith that that's going to fail to provide spiritual rest and satisfaction for their souls. That, that's the imagery here. You've made your bed, now you have to lie in it. And you'll reap what you sow. And he says God's judgment when it comes will be like his decisive work at Mount Perizim. You say, what is that referring to? Well, if you remember, maybe in your Bible reading, you came across David's defeat of the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5. That was where God's decisive work gained him the victory. And then he also references the Valley of Gibeon. That was when divine intervention destroyed the Amorites with hailstones in Joshua chapter 10 as they were fleeing. And so God's saying, I'm going to rise up with divine action, but the unusual and the extraordinary or the strange and kind of weird thing that he refers to here is that in this situation, God's divine power is going to be directed at his own people. He says, I'm going to rise up with power like I did against your enemies, but it's going to be against you in judgment. And the more you scoff, verse 22 the more you scoff, the more you turn your back on the life of faith, the more severe God's judgment will fall. The fetters will be made stronger. Words of woe scattered all throughout this chapter. It's a good reminder for us, I think, as we read these words, that whenever arrogance and pride toward God lull us, either individually, corporately, collectively, into a life of self-sufficiency, into a life of self-indulgence, into a life of a spiritual indifference, that the Lord, we need to be reminded, the Lord has every resource on heaven, in heaven and on earth at his disposal to put us in our place. We don't often think, I don't think we see as, as um, and I know I certainly don't, think how much pride provokes God. As a culture, we don't, um, we don't see anything wrong with pride, really. I mean, boasting, self-reliance, that's not just acceptable. It's actually encouraged. It's rewarded in the world. Not so with God. God hates the proud. Seven, you know, he talks about things that he hates in the Proverbs, and he hates a haughty spirit. Pride robs God of his rightful glory Pride opens the door to every kind of rebellion and sin. It, it dulls our spiritual senses, makes us unable to hear the word. And when pride takes root, Proverbs 16, 18 says, destruction isn't far behind. If you make that bed, you must lie in it. And one thing that kind of stands out to me as I read these verses, these words of woe, is you can reject the word of God, but you cannot escape it. 
You can, you, can, you can say, I don't believe it, I don't want to follow it, I don't care what God says, but you cannot, you cannot in the end escape it. But with that word of woe, with those words of woe, we can't forget that God's judgment, his threats of judgment aren't really meant to just threaten. They're meant to call us back to him. They're meant to turn us back to him. And that's why God is also weaved within these chapters, and especially in chapter 28, he's alongside these words of woe, words of promise. And that's what we want to look at in the second part of our outline. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter in verses 5 and 6, and again we'll see in verses 14 and 19, there are words of promise for God's people as well. Verse 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem Excuse me, to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Hope, as it so often does in Isaiah, just creeps in out of nowhere. You just be reading and then boom, promise, <laughs> out of nowhere. And that's what you see happening here. One minute, Samaria is a fading crown, a, a prideful crown, trampled underfoot, a fading flower, washed away by, being washed away by a flood, cut down by a hailstorm. And in the very next verse, it's the opposite. Just like all of a sudden. But notice this reversal of fortunes is in the future, in that day. Remember we said that that phrase, in that day, is looking to an indeterminate future time. A definitive time, but an indeterminate future time. In that day, what we see here in verses 5 and 6 is that all that Israel was not, God will be for them. All that Israel was not, God will be for them. Samaria was an arrogant crown, a fading glory, a diminished beauty. And then he says, in that day, the Lord of hosts is a beautiful crown, a, de- a glorious diadem, a shining, unfading beauty amongst a trusting remnant of his people. Israel is described in verses 1 to 4. They were drunkards. They were reeling in their own foolishness and stupidity. They were incapable of rendering sound judgment. In that day, the true king will sit on the throne. He will judge all things righteously. There will be complete security as the enemy is turned away at the gate. I mean, in the ancient world, the gates were essential to a city's defense. If the gate fell, the city fell. God's strong city, which we saw back in chapter 26, is here. Again, the imagery is kind of pulled forward as as Isaiah mixes and matches metaphors and in word pictures. The promise, the promise in verses 5 to 6 is a, is a faithful remnant dwelling with their true king, established and preserved by divine power. That's the hope. But it's not just, a, and that's his hope for Israel. It's not just a trusting remnant in Israel, though, that are given a promise. Isaiah has a word of promise for Judah as well, and that's what we see in verses 14 to 19. Look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Judah's leaders, we saw in verses 7 to 13, were mocking Isaiah, refusing to hear God's word, and now God has a word for them. 
And, and then it, I think that the words of verse 15 are just dripping with irony. It's, he's just mocking them, really, um, in a sanctified way, I guess. Isaiah is pointing out that they have made a covenant or an agreement with death. What does he mean by that? Isaiah is likely referring to Hezekiah's political alliance with Egypt, which he's going to skewer in the beginning part of chapter 30 and the beginning part of chapter 31. Judah, in fear, ran to Egypt, enlisting promises from Egypt of military support if Assyria came knocking on their doorstep to conquer them. And Isaiah calls Hezekiah's agreement a covenant with death or a pact with the grave or Sheol because they were pretty much signing their own execution papers. Judah had basically deluded themselves into believing that Egypt was strong enough and trustworthy enough to rescue them, to save them. And they falsely believed that God, the creator of heaven and earth, was not strong enough to do that. This is what faithless human effort always does. It makes falsehood a refuge. It hides itself in deception. You have to create an alternative reality to quiet and shelter your conscience from what is just plainly obvious. To live by your wits, working the system in, in search of results, and not to live by the word of God is utter foolishness. It is high-handed rebellion. And to pretend it's anything beyond that requires you to bury your head in the sand like an ostrich. But again, seemingly out of nowhere, this word of promise just emerges in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. This verse, verse 16, is one of three definitive declarations of faith in the Old Testament. The first is in Genesis 16 and verse, uh, excuse me, Genesis 15 and verse 6, where Abraham believes God and it's accounted to him as righteousness. We just referenced the other one earlier in Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, and this is the third one. And it comes as a summary proclamation of the sovereign Lord. Um, Back in chapter 8 in verses 14 and 15, Isaiah described the Lord as a stone. There, he uses this imagery of the Lord as a stone in uh, 8.14 and 15. But there, the Lord is described as a a stone to strike and a rock that, that becomes a stumbling or a fence. Here, in verse 16, he's described as a precious stone, not, and not just any stone, a costly cornerstone firmly planted that supports two main walls. He calls this cornerstone a testing stone, a tested stone or a testing stone. That, what does he mean by that? Well, it can, there's some debate. It could, it could be either a stone that's undergone testing and therefore is reliable or it could mean a stone that tests others to see whether they take it as, it as their foundation. So which is it? Well, I think on balance, the illusion that he has, because it's definitely drawing the imagery from chapter 8, and the way this text is even used in the New Testament in Romans 9, 10, and then in 1 Peter 2, I think it seems best to take it to mean a stone that tests others. A stone that tests others. 
But either way, whether you assume one or the other, the, the basic point is similar. The Lord has promised to lay a foundation stone, a foundation stone upon which God's people can build their lives, and the one who trusts in that stone, that one will never be disturbed or dismayed, depending on your translation. In other words, they will, they will never be unsettled. They will never be hurrying, frantic, frazzled, a mess. That's what this word has the idea of just kind of like. The opposite of this word is composed, settled, unshakable. And of course, if you, if you know the, anything of the New Testament, you know the, the Apostle Paul and Peter both, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apply this text directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter urges the churches in Galatia to stand firm, reminding them that they've put their trust in Christ. They have, by the grace of God, recognized Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promise here given through the mouth of Isaiah. Jesus is that living stone. He is the one in whom they have placed their trust. And Peter says, Christ is the one that you are building your lives on, not by your own efforts and not by your own works, but as you look to him in humble, childlike faith. And because he says you've trusted in him, you will not be shaken. And beloved, that is true for us. If you have put your faith in Christ this morning, that is true for us. The Lord has set this living stone firmly in place. He, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. He is ascended to that right hand of the Father. And if you have believed upon Christ today, as if for the salvation of your soul, you will not be shaken. You will not be shaken that the promise that God gave through Isaiah some 2,700 years ago is trustworthy. You can bank on it. And when the Lord's judgment is measured out, verse 17 says it is done with perfect precision. It will make justice, he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Got a plumb line and a level, vertical, horizontal, perfect measurement. Righteousness must be perfect. God will not tolerate human alternatives to his way of salvation. Right? If, if we approach God on the basis of works, then it has to be perfect. But we can't do that. Only those who have chosen to live their lives by faith, looking to the perfect righteousness of Christ, those are the ones who will not be put to shame. So, so in this chapter, just in chapter 28, there's just incredible promises. What we were not, God will be for us. What sinful man could not do by his own effort, God has done by the finished work of his son. And what does he ask of us in return? He asks that we trust him. That we trust him. That you take him at his word that you build your life on his precious and magnificent promises. That's what he asks of us in return. So we've seen words of woe, words of promise. Isaiah ends with words of wisdom. In verses 23 to 29, he says, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. This is kind of a, in some ways, this, this echoes some of the wisdom 
uh, verbiage that you see in other, other portions of the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah has is, is got a word of wisdom, really. Um, he's going to give us a par- an extended parable here. But in these verses, Isaiah is reasoning with his readers and with us to take to heart what God has revealed. Both the threats and the promises that God has promised for the future. And he uses two very simple farming analogies, one of sowing and one of reaping. The first analogy is of the farmer who sows. Verse 24, does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place, and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. It's a rhetorical question, questions. He says, the farmer, when he goes out in the field, does he just keep plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing? Of course he doesn't, right? He, he plows for a reason. He, he plows to prep the ground, and then he sows the seed, and he sows the seed exactly where it needs to go, in its area, in a place that's ideal for its growth, for, its, for a full harvest. This is God's intention, and the farmer has learned it by God's instruction. And then he, the parable doesn't just stop at sowing. It continues on to harvesting and reaping in verses 27 to 29. He says, For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh forever. Because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it, he does not thresh it longer. This, is also, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Again, this is kind of one of those obvious things, especially in that day, because pretty much everybody farmed to survive. The harvesting of crops wasn't done willy-nilly, but each thing was harvested according to its nature. It was treated the way it was supposed to be treated. Dill's treated one way, cumin's treated another way, grain is ground up a, a, a third way. The threshing, like the plowing, doesn't just go on and on and on. Right? Otherwise, the crop would be destroyed and the harvest would be lost. What, the point of the parable, then, is, is, is twofold. One, he's trying to explain that there is intention, purpose, and ultimately divine wisdom in God's actions with his people and with the nations. There is intention, purpose, and ultimately divine wisdom in God's actions toward his people and the surrounding nations. And secondly, he reminds us, this, this, this parable reminds us that God will not deal in judgment with his people forever. His, God's saving purposes will be brought to completion And in the end, there will be everlasting good for those who trust him. So how can we be sure? How can we be sure? Well, verse 29, his counsel is wonderful. His wisdom is great. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But that doesn't mean that we need to doubt him. It doesn't mean that we need to scoff or pull back. It means we need to take him at his word. We need to trust him. And that's, that is the message again and again and again as you work through chapters 29, 20, you know, 30, 31, 32, 33. It's the same message. Trust him. Build your life on the promises of God, not man's efforts 
We don't live by our wits. We don't live by our works. We don't live by our maneuvering. We live in trust on the word of God. And if we do that, then all the promises of God, of course, the scripture says, find their yes in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these uh, threats and promises. Sometimes we need to be confronted and sometimes we need to be called to, um, com- to be comforted. And, and you do both. The, the prophet never ceases to have a word for the moment wherever we find ourselves. If we're rebellious and hard-hearted and arrogant and scoffing, he has a word of uh, a serious and uh, a terrifying word of threat for those who are downcast and dis- discouraged, those who feel as if things are slipping away or that you cannot be trusted. Lord, you have a word of comfort, uh, great promises. We see also as we come to, as we study your word, we see just the incredible cohesiveness of it, uh, that the word of Isaiah some you know, 700 years before Paul and Peter um, discloses real truths and real realities that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you keep your word, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we bank our lives on you, and Lord, may we live for you by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.